Good morning. Uh, my name is Matt Trexler. I'm the RUF campus minister at UCLA. It's good to see you guys. Um, I've lost my voice. I was at the UCLA-USC game at the Rose Bowl. Um, so it's appropriate that we're talking about anger and sadness today. So I've, I've prepared my heart for this service, you could say. So um, isn't it amazing how God works? Um, so anyways, we are, right, this is the week before Advent. So it's good to be with you in this season. I love Advent, so this sermon's kind of like the pregame for Advent. Um, but Advent is kind of this season um, where we wait with eager expectation for the light of the world. It's a season of waiting, sometimes even in the darkness and brokenness and sadness of this world, as we wait to sing joy to the world. And today we're going to look at a passage not traditionally tied to Advent, but it's a story where those whom Jesus loves have to wait for his arrival. And before he brings about a resurrection, he wants to meet them in their anger and in their sadness and in their distress. So before we kind of dive into that passage, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could come here this morning to worship you. Lord, you are good. Lord, many times though we look out at our world and it is easy for us to be tempted to think that you are not good. Maybe there are things going on in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own souls. Lord, I pray that you would go where my words cannot go. I pray that you would give us your spirit and you would speak to us. I pray that I would stand behind the cross. Lord, this microphone helps people to hear my voice, but it does not help people to hear your voice, and it's your voice that we need to hear. So Lord, I pray that you would speak. I pray that we would leave trusting in you. I pray that we would leave worshiping you. I pray that we would leave loving you more. And I pray that you would do this, Father, for your sake, for, this, for the namesake of your Son. And I ask this in his name. Amen. Now, I love movies, okay? And one of my favorite movies is Wonder Woman. I don't know if you guys have seen this. But Wonder Woman, Diana, superhero goddess, Amazon princess, she, her entire mission in life is to fight death and violence, particularly in the form of the god Ares. And in this movie, <clears throat> she is taken away from her home, her island, by this American soldier played by Chris Pine. And he wants her to fight in one of the world wars, I think World War I, against the military death machine that is Germany. And throughout the movie, she can't wait to get into the battle, but he is kind of preventing her. Right? And he's kind of saying, no, we've got to wait. Uh, we've got to, we, we can't go in quite yet. He's like mansplaining to her. Right? And there's this one scene where they're, they're kind of in the trenches. And she's like, I want to get into the battle. He's just like, no, you can't, Diana. You can't save everyone. She's like, yes, I can. Right? And she climbs the ladder and she looks out at the battlefield at death and violence and all around her. And she charges straight into it. And I think that that's an image of John chapter 11. And here's what I mean by that. The hero of this story, Jesus meets the enemy, which is death, and he charges straight into it. He go, the light of the world <clears throat> goes into the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. You see, in this passage, darkness takes the form of death, and he has come to fight it. <clears throat> and he has come to meet people in their sadness and in their fears. And it's been my experience, even as a pastor, that we usually don't tell people when we're sad. We're very good at masking the pain that we feel, even as it tears us apart on the inside. Maybe we have our reasons. I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be weak. 
I don't want to admit to myself that my anger and anxiety and sadness are actually there. And we hide it so well, in fact, that no one around us even suspects that on the inside our heart is breaking and our head is screaming. But Jesus knows and Jesus sees and Jesus enters in. So what I want to do is I want to walk through this passage and I want to look at it in three ways. That Jesus waits, that Jesus weeps, and that Jesus wakes. He waits, he weeps, and he wakes. Yes, I said that right. Okay. Well, my campus minister, RUF campus minister, Sammy Rhodes, uh, broke that down. He broke this passage down that way, and I've never been able to see it differently. So kudos to Sammy Rhodes for that outline. Um, But Jesus waits. No one likes waiting. I hate waiting. This is why I don't get on the 405, because I want to murder everyone, right? I hate when my phone freezes and I can't send a text message. Like in the Rose Bowl, I'm like trying to post my story, let people know I'm at the Rose Bowl, and it's not doing it. I want to chuck it against the wall, right? I, I don't like going to the, when there's long lines at Trader Joe's. Listen, I just want my oat milk and my Trader Joe's peppermint chocolate. Like, come on, hurry up. I don't like going to the DMV because it's like getting a root canal. I want quick fixes. I hate waiting. Jesus does something really strange in this passage. We didn't get to read this particular part, but he finds out that his friend Lazarus is sick, very sick. In fact, that he's dying and they bring that news to him and he decides to wait two days before he goes. Why? Jesus, your friend Lazarus is dying. We've got to do, do you think Jesus would be like, we need to get there quickly. Let's apparate. Let's get there. I need to heal this guy before anything happens. Why does Jesus choose to wait? Verse 5 and 6, we didn't read this part, but it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. <clears throat> I'm, I'm sorry, come again? He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And Lazarus is ill, so Jesus decides to wait two more days where he is. Um, why? <laughs> This text is very adamant to tell you he loved them. It's not because he doesn't love them, but he loved them so much that he waited. Now, if you follow Jesus long enough, you, very know, you quickly will realize Jesus doesn't work on our timetable. Uh, some of you maybe are experiencing that frustration even now. Like, Jesus, you have the power to secure my future. You have the power to answer my prayers. You have the power to save my relatives, to save the people that I've been praying for. You have the power to take away my chronic pain. You have the power to give me this job. Why are you not coming through? Why are you not answering my prayers? I thought all the promises of God were yes and amen in Christ. (laughs) Where are they? Have you ever been frustrated with the Lord that he seems to delay? I, I, I think about when, you know, Jesus is in the storm and his, he's asleep, he's getting some Z's, and like, you know, like the waves are crashing. And what is it that Peter yells out? Master, wake up. Do you not care about us? And that's what happens, I think, many times when I'm praying these prayers, Lord, I want this student to know you. I want this thing to happen. I want you to actually come through and help. And it feels like you're asleep. Like, Lord, where are you? Do you care? One of my friends said that his grandmother always told him, the Lord never shows up when you want him to but he always shows up on time. Is that the Jesus you know? Not the Jesus who's at your beck and call, not genie Jesus, right? But the Jesus who sometimes delays. Why does he delay? Well, we know it's not because he doesn't love them. We know that sometimes it's in that waiting 
that Jesus wants to meet us there. Sometimes when God doesn't answer my prayers or bad things starts happening, my prayer is not, God, where are you? It's, God, how dare you? Like, how dare you do this? Lord, there's a line, and you just crossed it, Lord. Like, you can't allow this to happen. Where are you? But sometimes it's in the midst of that sadness and that darkness that Jesus does some of his deepest work. And what Jesus is doing here is he wants to do something far better than just heal Lazarus of a fever. He wants to bring this family to an unshakable confidence in who he is. He wants to do a resurrection. But this is the second thing, and this is really very important, which is that Jesus weeps. See, eventually he does go to Bethany, and he meets Mary and Martha. And their anger and sadness are so deep that they can't even contain their emotions. I don't know if you saw it in this passage, but don't forget, these are Jesus' friends, like Mary and Martha. Like they... This is what Jesus, you know, went to their home in Bethany. Uh, there's that famous passage at the end of Luke 10. They hang out together. They play Catan and like Scrabble. Like they're, they're best friends. Jesus loves them. They love Jesus. But they are mad at Jesus right now, especially Martha. You got to love Martha sometimes. She's just, she's very relatable. And she comes up to Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you had actually heard our requests when we sent them to you and actually had done something about it, this wouldn't have happened. She's, she's upset, understandably. She's angry. You know, sometimes we think we can't really be angry with God. You know, we're like, oh, no, that's not spiritual. I mean, sure, we don't want to be like those who murmur and complain in the desert and, you know, the Israelites. But there's also a time when Moses is like, Lord, you promised you're not coming through. What are you doing? Or you have the psalmists who cry out to God. Or you have Elijah who's like, why don't you just take my life now, Lord? Like you have people who get angry at God. My, my, my pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, said, we are too refined with God. He can take it. He can take it. Read the Psalms, right? God, I know you are good. Why didn't you come? Why didn't you come through? See, God is not put off your, by your anger so long as you beat on his chest. And what's fascinating here is that if you, if you see this passage, <clears throat> Jesus enters into that anger, and he's actually angry in this passage as well. Not at Mary and Martha. He doesn't like backslap them, right? He's not like, how dare you talk to me like this? It says that he's deeply troubled in his soul when he hears that Lazarus is dead. And this image in the Greek is these ideas of horses kind of snorting in anger. Well, who is, who's Jesus angry at in this passage? He's angry at death. Jesus is angry because his friend Lazarus has died. You know that God hates death, right? It's not the way our culture talks about it. Our culture is like death is a friend that you should greet. Death just happens to everyone. It's all something we just should accept. You know what the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15? The last enemy to be defeated is death. <laughs> it's an enemy. It's not good. It's not supposed to be this way. That means that when you're at a funeral and you feel angry that death has happened, God is angry too. He, this is not the way it's supposed to be. God is angry about the abuse that has happened in your life, about even the violence that is done. God sees the hurts of this world and he doesn't just stand by. He enters into it. He is moved by it. He sees the homeless. He sees those who are hurting. He sees those who have been through tragedy and injustice and it moves his heart. God sees and God cares. I don't remember where I heard this story, but um, this nurse said that she was working in the hospital shift, and there's this family gathered around um, their dying dad. 
and he breathes his last. And she says immediately, as soon as that happened, they started to wreck everything in the hospital room, like smashing monitors, like throwing chairs, all kind of stuff. And she said, that's the most appropriate response to death I've ever seen. That's the most appropriate response because death is a cancer that has invaded this world that he loves. Jesus is angry at death. But it's not just anger, right? He approaches Mary and he sees her weeping. Verse 45, we didn't get to see this part, but the shortest verse in the English Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus, the man of sorrows, wept. When Mary cries, Jesus bursts into tears too because our suffering moves the heart of God. Psalm 56, you've kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? See, God pays attention to your anxiety when you're restless, when you're tossing, when you're turning. And the emotion that most, Jesus most displays in the Gospels is compassion, right? He moves for, towards those who are in pain, for lepers, for prostitutes, for the sick. He has compassion on them and those who have suffered and experienced loss. And he is very gentle with those who grieve. Now, sometimes we as Christians, we want to like do the, like, well, God's got a plan, you know? It's like we kind of want to put a little bow on it. Like, how, how could you be sad? Like, they're in a better place. An angel's got its wings or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, <clears throat> I, I love the show Friday Night Lights, and uh, I don't want to spoil it. It's, it's also it came out in like 2006, so. But it's a it's football show, and um, in the first episode, high school quarterback Jason Street, who's got this He's just incredible. He's probably going to go play for Bama, like whatever. He's playing in the opening game of his high school senior year and season ending, I mean, career ending injury, right? He's paralyzed from the waist down and he's in the hospital and his girlfriend, Lila Garrity, who's a Christian, comes in the hospital room and she immediately goes over to him and she says, Jason, God's got a plan. Don't worry. And he just says, oh, really? You're going to play the God card? <laughs> I can't hear that right now. And he just gets angry. Sometimes we, we, want to, we want to care for people and we say, well, God's got a plan. And we mean it like a care package, but it ends up blowing up like a Bible grenade in people's face, right? Where it's like, I heard, this is, I heard one pastor say, if, if my kids or my wife is fa are like fatally ill or sick and someone comes up to me and says, well, God's got a plan. He's like, you know, God will make it better. Um, God will work it out for good. He says, I imagine holding a baseball bat. And just like, poof, right at their kneecaps. And as they're writhing in pain, being like, God's got a plan. <laughs> and he's like, because that's, that's how it feels, right? We mean it for good, but it can just feel so hard. And it's true, God does have a plan. But look what Jesus does. He doesn't give Mary a sermon. He gives, him, he gives her his tears. He gives her his tears. If you doubt the goodness of Jesus, remember his tears. Jesus knows what he's going to do. Like, he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus. Like, he could have come up in there and been like, y'all stop crying. I'm, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I got something to blow your mind. Just wait what's going to happen. You have no idea. But he doesn't. He enters into it. He comes into the grief in the morning and he weeps, which shows you that he's not sentimental about suffering. He responds to it appropriately, which means it's godly, for you to weep over the tragedies that you've experienced. I, have, it's just, I, I meet with guys all the time at UCLA and, and, and they just kind of just like always want to shove their emotions down like beach balls under the surface of the water. And it's like, you know, it's okay to be sad, right? Like, it's okay. You can be sad. This is not good. This is hard. It's okay. Not only is it okay, it's sometimes godly to be angry about them. It's not just permissible, it's Christ-like. 
And I mean, we, as, even as Christian circles, we have to create a culture where to grieve something is okay. It's not unspiritual. Right? We don't have to bludgeon people with Bible verses, like I said. Because these responses can be dehumanizing. But what does it look like when we actually enter into people with compassion? Um, Brene Brown has this illustration where she, she kind of talks about the difference between sympathy and empathy. And she says, imagine that someone is down in the pit, right? And, you kinda, and we kind of look down at them and we're like, hey, come up out of the pit. It's sunny. It's California. Why are you in depression? Come on out. It, life's better up here. She says, that doesn't help anybody. That's sympathy. That's not empathy. She's like, real empathy means getting down into the pit with the person, sitting down next to them and saying, wow, it's really dark down here, isn't it? This is really hard. And see, that's actually what Jesus does in this passage is God actually knows what it's like to experience sadness and death as a human being. He knows, not just cognitively, he knows what it's like in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is now on the throne of this universe. And he actually wants you to come to him in the midst of your sadness and your fear and your anger and says, come to me when you're tempted to despair, when you're tempted to give up, I want you to come to me because I'm a sympathetic high priest. I've been tempted in every way that you are. And I'm able to have compassion on you. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I understand. It's okay. You can fall apart in my presence. You can come into... Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Dale Bruner said that it's actually in sadness that we are most closely in God's hand. That He is near to us. He is near to the brokenhearted and to the crushed in spirit. But we ultimately don't just need a God who just feels bad about sad things. We also need a God who actually does something. And this is the third thing, which is that Jesus wakes. See, Jesus will not let sadness have the last word. He goes to the tomb and he screams and roars into the darkness, Lazarus, come out. Now, I love, I love this scene. Um, we didn't get to read this part, but Martha comes up and she's like, he's been dead for four days. Uh, meaning like, it's going to smell terrible. Like, can we get some Febreze up in there? Like, you're going to raise him. I believe you're going to do it. You do your Jesus thing. But I just want you to know, it's going to smell really bad. Can we just do something about that? Um, and Jesus just says, hold on, watch what I will do. And several things kind of happen. We need to realize here that Lazarus is actually dead. Like, dead as a doornail. And Jesus calls into this tomb and he calls Lazarus by name. And Lazarus comes out. And I love that scene. Because I think that's what Jesus is doing now. I think, yes, one day in the resurrection, he will call our names and we will come literally out of the resurrection into new life. But even now, he is calling into our names and spiritually he is bringing us to life. Like, if you're a Christian, it's because Jesus has called you by name. No one says your name like Jesus does. Jesus is calling to you. Maybe some of you, you haven't been to the church in a really long time. Maybe you've really been struggling, but the last few months or so, you've started praying again. Or maybe you know someone who started praying again, and they, they have this inkling, this desire to actually come back. Do you know what that is? That's Jesus calling to them. That's Jesus calling them back to himself. One of my favorite books is the, in the Chronicles of Narnia is The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read these books, they're amazing. I mean, read them to your kids. Read, they're, they're, I've, read, I've gotten something new out of them since I was like in fourth grade till now. Like, they're amazing. But in The Silver Chair, these two characters named Eustace and Jill are in, are in our world, and they're running from these bullies from this British boarding school. 
And Eustace has been to Narnia before, and he starts calling out Aslan's name. Aslan, Aslan. And Jill, who's never been before, she starts calling out Aslan, Aslan, because that's what he's doing. And then all of a sudden, a door appears in this wall, and they go through, and they're in Narnia, and they meet the great lion, Aslan. And Aslan looks at Jill, and he says, I've called you here, Jill, for a mission. She says, you called me? I'm pretty sure I was the one calling your name. And C.S. Lewis writes this, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. The reason that we pray, the reason that we call out to Christ is because Christ has called our name out of the grave. He has roared into the darkness and says, you belong to me. When my students start coming to a large group and they don't know why, and they don't, I tell them, listen, this desire that you have for God did not originate with you. If you are here today because you have even a mustard seed of faith or desire, it did not start with you. God planted it there. Your desire is the fruit, but it is not the root. And what that means is that God is calling to you and he's calling to me. And what he wants to do is, this is the teaser trailer for what he's going to one day do for the whole world. As he brings us to spiritual life, he's also going to bring us to real resurrection life at the end. It's like at the end of Avengers Endgame, when uh, all the people who've been Thanos snapped, right, come out of the portals. Like, that's Easter Sunday. Like, the life is, that's, just, that's how you know you're a pastor. When you watch that and you're like, that's Easter, that's resurrection, right? Like, you're like, this is the curse of being a pastor. You can't just watch a movie. You have to analyze everything. Um, but that's what Jesus is going to one day do for the whole world. What he just did for Lazarus is what he's going to do for the whole world. This is what the risen Christ does. He knows each of his sheep by name. And Jesus is calling us to life, eternal life, a life that death will not interrupt. Maybe he's calling to you in the midst of your sadness right now. Maybe it's actually when everything has fallen apart, when everything seems like it's going wrong, when it feels like he's not there, when you're at the bottom, that's when you hear Jesus' voice. That's when you hear him calling to you. Behold, I will make all things new. I will make all things new. But you know, this passage ends in a really weird way. It says the Pharisees see Jesus raise Lazarus and they say, we've got to kill this guy. We've got to kill him. See, Jesus knows that. He knows that if he's going to bring Lazarus out of the tomb, it means that he's going to have to go into one. That this action is going to lead to his death. And you actually see that in John. This is the end of John 11. John 12, he begins to face, he's go towards Jerusalem. And then you have the rest of John where he actually is preparing for his death as he goes to the crucifixion. This is the turning point. You want to know what God actually thinks about your pain and suffering? Look as it rips his son apart on the cross. That's what he thinks about evil. That's how much he cares. If you looked at your circumstances, it will not tell you. If you look at your circumstances that are happening, you say, he loves me, right? He loves me not, right? He loves me, he loves me not. Like, things are going well. I got that internship, I got that job. He loves me. It's like, I failed Okim, he loves me not, right? Like, or so whatever happens. And you have to, you can't look at your circumstances. You have to look at the fact that Jesus went to the cross for you. That God gave up his own son for you. That's what he's going to do to rescue you from sin and death and darkness. That's how you know he's willing to put an end to pain and suffering itself because he's willing to plunge himself into it. And death did its worst to Jesus on the cross. And he really did die. He really did go into the grave. His heart stopped beating. But Jesus came out of that grave. He defeated 
death. And he says, I go not only to my father, but your father. I go to my God and your God because my victory is your victory. What I have done will be applied to you. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Death will not get the final word over your life. The final words over your life will be, he is risen. Um, this is one of my, I'll conclude this way, but one of my favorite stories I've heard was during 1950s communist Russia, the communists, what they would do is they would send in these skilled orators into some of these towns and villages, and their goal was to stamp out the faith of the people there. And so they would send in these, these skilled orders to gather everyone into the center square, and they would bring up the country priest, and they would do like a debate. And they would use these fancy skilled arguments, these academic arguments, and they would rip apart the logic of the resurrection just so they could crush the faith of the people there. And in this one village, this man finishes, this order finishes his diatribe, and he looks over at the country priest and he says, so what will you say about this resurrection? And the priest, who's not a very educated man necessarily, he looks out at his crowd, his congregation, the people whom he's baptized their children, he's given them communion, he's buried their parents, and he looks out and he quotes something from the Orthodox liturgy. He says, he is risen. And the crowd thunderously replies, He is risen indeed. He says, He is risen. He is risen indeed. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Death will not get the final word. Pain will not get the final word. Sadness will not get the final word. We may doubt that resurrection, but that resurrection is true. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And he asked that not just to Martha, but to us as well. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us, your mercy and kindness to us. Lord, you enter into our sadness and into our weakness and into our suffering, Lord. But Lord, I pray that you would do a new thing. Lord, I pray that you would bring about a resurrection. Lord, I pray that because of your resurrection, we would live in that resurrection power. Lord, that you would actually grant us that hope even today. Help us to lift our eyes to Christ, our hope who sits on a throne. And Lord, I pray that you would give us your hope even in the midst of this Advent season that we may sing at the end, joy to the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.